And thank you very much uh, for coming out this evening. Uh, it's a great honour to uh, be giving the Besterman Lecture. I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, but it's terrible, obviously, to come here and talk about terror in Paris uh, in a week which has seen terror on the streets and the cafes and the restaurants of the city. So I would just like to start as in the sort of uh, mood that um, Nicholas evoked by stating the obvious, uh, especially in this company, uh, that we all think with fondness and concern for our, our friends and colleagues and indeed the citizens of Paris. Second, that the terror of the French Revolution is a very different kind of phenomenon to, the, uh, to what Parisians have just uh, experienced. But third, that in writing this paper, the resilience of Parisians in this and other times has been firmly in my thoughts, as I think towards the end perhaps you'll see. But I'll be focusing, of course, not on 2015, but on the 1790s, which was, Charles Dickens reminds us, the best of times and the worst of times. In A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens had in his sights the whole experience of the French Revolution after 1789, but invariably we tend to see the quotation targeted at the city of Paris during the revolutionary terror of 1793, in which his gripping novel climaxes. For Dickens, the perceived horrors of the terror were, were so all-encompassing that the best of times epithet seems to attach only to the possibility for self-sacrificial martyrdom of a quintessentially stiff upper-lipped English uh, Sydney Carton. Rather, that is, to anything intrinsically good, let alone superlatively good, about the revolution and the terror in themselves. What historians call the terror was this period of emergency government in France, 1793 to 1794. France's National Assembly, the Convention, elected in 1792 by universal male suffrage, placed the executive power in the hands of a dozen of their colleagues who operated as the Committee of Public Safety. And with its sister co committee, the uh, Committee of General Security, which attended largely to policing matters and internal security, it comprised what was called the revolutionary government. The Committee of Public Safety's role was to run the war effort, essentially, and France was at war with almost every uh, European state. It also sought to crush internal dissent through a self-conscious policy of deterrence, terror, in fact. For many, the period of the terror would come to be embodied, moreover, in the, in the person of Maximilien Robespierre, nicknamed, as you'll know, the incorruptible, certainly the most conspicuous of the 12 deputies who made up the Committee of Public Safety. We hardly need Charles Dickens to remind us that the French Revolution has often, maybe even invariably, had a bad press in British culture. Even before it happened, and we think, before the terror happened, we think here of the short-term predictions and long-term, massive, long-term influence of Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, published in 1790. The revolution was widely viewed in uh, Anglo-American culture as substantive with violence and authoritarian rule. 1793 to 4 was thus 1789 writ larger and deadlier. The drift into European warfare uh, in 1792 to 3 stimulated state-sponsored, ideologically driven repression. At this phase, violence seemed to find embodiment in the person of Robespierre, who was to eclipse even Napoleon, I think, as, Napo as 19th century Europe's most hated historical figure. Yet there have always been those, indubitably far more numerous in France than in England or the United States or North America, who've praised the work of revolutionary government and justified the terror and Robespierre's role within it. Revolutionary government held France together as a national territorial unit at a time of extraordinary stress. 
For France to have fallen back into the hands of covetous great powers, vengeful emigre aristocrats, and a learnt nothing, a forgotten nothing Bourbon dynasty would have ramped up considerably the already high levels of bloodshed. Revolutionary government also allowed a historic Republican continuity to emerge for the human rights that had been outlined so spectacularly in 1789. In addition, some of the values which the revolutionary government sought to enforce, equal rights, democratic elections, egalitarian social measures, imaginative programs of uh, poor relief, still strike a chord in our own society, or at least it'd be nice to think they did. Thus, while in the context of the negative fetishization of terror, respect and admiration for Robespierre, for example, has been meagre in the extreme in the Anglo-American Academy and more widely its culture. The notion of Robespierre as incarnation of an ideal of a virtuous, just, egalitarian society has fared rather better in France, though far from universally. We, course, of course, always think of how few streets and monuments in France are dedicated to the incorruptible one. Politicians and historians on the left in France um, sometimes, usually a little self-dramatizingly, I think, call themselves Robespierreist. It is simply impossible to imagine any historian standing up in public in England or the United States and proclaiming themselves a Robespierreist without, one imagines, drawing the speedy attention of the mental health services or, or being led quietly away by homeland security uh, or whatever. Robespierre and the terror thus seem to mark a spot of sheer incommensurability between the cultures of the French left and the values of Anglo-American conservatism and liberalism. And I think this has proved strikingly the case after World War II in the Cold War period. The Israeli scholar uh, uh, Jacob Talman's influential book, The Origins of T Totalitarian Democracy, published in the 1950s, argued that 20th century populist uh, dictatorships could trace their ideological origins back to Robespierre and the terror uh, in the convention that Robespierre in turn derived his ideas from what Talman saw as the intolerant general will theories of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The French revolutionary terror was thus a proto-totalitarian regime and early instantiation of a political tendency to be brought to grim maturation in the 20th century. In this Cold War black legend, hating Robespierre came to stand proxy for hating not only Lenin and Stalin, but also Hitler and Mussolini. Indeed, thanks, I think, partly to the invariably blood-curdling analyses of uh, psychobiographers, it was extended to any dictator or damaged personality that one could rustle up. It certainly seems the case that any historical figure who, like Robespierre, invites comparison not only with all of the above, but also more recently with Tony Blair, George W. Bush, Cambodia's Pol Pot, President Ahmadinejad of, of uh, Iran, Julian Assange, and most recently Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> is unlikely to have been all good, shall we say. But even so, that demonizing overkill almost invites skepticism. Could anyone really be that bad? So with the Cold War now over, uh, it's true, there are some signs of an ideological thaw in this area of clash of cultures. Yet popular culture still plays, I think, very much the old Cold War tunes, the old Cold War stereotypes, especially outside France. And many of you remember last year, the French left in the National Assembly reacted angrily uh, to the contents of the video game Assassin's Creed which was set in Paris under the terror and in which, sure enough, Robespierre is in very emphatically portrayed as a 20th century style dictator come genocidal maniac. 
Moreover, at a much loftier level, uh, Jonathan Israel's recently published Revolutionary Ideas, an Intellectual History of the French Revolution, shows that the old stereotypes are still very much in place. Israel diagnoses Robespierre in particular as characterised by, quote, megalomania, paranoia and vindictiveness. He was, uh, Israel asserts, quote, a self-confessed dictator, and I'm going to come back to that, an authoritarian populist, a proto-fascist who seized personal power by engineering a putsch, his words, against Girondin enemies in the convention and then going on to rule with a rod of iron. Clearly, the proto-totalitarian black legend is alive and well and walking uh, and it walks among us. So my aim this evening is to reconsider this persistent and enduring proto-totalitarian interpretation of the revolution and the terror uh, and its coverage of Robespierre. But proving Robespierre wasn't a pre-incarnation of Hitler, Mussolini, then in Stalin or even Tony Blair isn't actually terribly uh, difficult and more challenging and more complicated I think is to understand just what the terror was and was not and what Robespierre's role was and was not within it. And today what I'm going to try and do is to explore uh, these questions while focusing very much on the city of Paris. Paris was the cockpit of terror, even if terror reached far beyond the walls of the nation's capital. In terms of body count, for example, the Revolutionary Tribunal in Paris accounted for less than 3,000 deaths in the city. And this is a nugatory amount, obviously, when set up against the great multi-million hecatombs of which 20th century dictators have managed. But the figure was also dwarfed by the tens of thousands uh, uh, who lost their lives in violent and repressive civil war zones in 1793-4. But though relatively few in number, those Parisian executions, I think, had cultural visibility. They got into the newspapers. They have influenced the historiography. Paris was also, it hardly needs saying, was where national politics were conducted, where the national convention sat, where the Committee of Public Safety was based. Here too, the sans-culotte movement was located, that movement of radical artisans, clerks and shopkeepers that from 1789 had consistently pushed revolutionary culture to the left. And Paris was ultimately where terror was undone, a process that really started on 27th of July, 1794, the 9th of Thermidor, year two in the revolutionary calendar, with the overthrow and then the execution the following day of Maximilien Robespierre, which is where I'll begin. With the fall of Robespierre then, the overthrow of what? A dictator. This was certainly the received wisdom, even before on the 28th of July, Robespierre's head had hit the executioner's basket. A rumour that once his dictatorship was established, Robespierre was planning to make himself king, rippled through the sections of Paris, even on the night of 9th and 10th of Thermidor, before being further embroidered in following weeks. In the light of Robespierre's strong anti-monarchism, this seemed the rankest hypocrisy uh, on his part. Every historic precedent was henceforward mine for damning dictator-like, uh, di dictator-shaped comparisons. Robespierre was an inhuman and cruel conspirator, a Catiline, a Caesar, a Nero, a Cromwell. Another more colourful way of underlining his inhumanity and bestiality was to compare him to an animal. Thus he was a vampire, a chameleon, a harpy, but especially, in fact, a cat, especially, and most of all, a tiger. Historians even today talk of Robespierre's feline or tigerish character and they don't realise, I think, they're borrowing more than they realise from post-Thermidorian propaganda. 
No one, for example, thought of Robespierre as a tiger before he was executed, or a cat for that matter, before he was executed. Those who had uh, overthrown him after the Ninth of Thermidor thought of very little else. As this example suggests, historians of Robespierre and the Terror are condemned to view the man and to weigh his intentions against a huge barrage of ex post facto denigratory propaganda. Almost at once, moreover, in the frenzied circumstances of his overthrow, a kind of blame game got underway that had little regard for truth. When Vadier, one of the members of the Committee of General Security, many years later owned up to purely inventing the story, the rumour that Robespierre planned to be king, uh, Vadier stated, quote, the danger of losing one's head had made one imaginative. Uh, after the Ninth of Thermidor, personal responsibility for all radical legislation of the Convention, all the unpopular and most overtly terroristic measures could be dumped at his door by colleagues who had shared power with him. Robespierre was the ultimate scapegoat. Robespierre once claimed that as one of the 12 members of the Committee of Public Safety, he enjoyed only one-twelfth of its power and authority, and I think this is more than a little disingenuous. But he, did, he made many striking speeches in the convention which sought to theorise the, the, uh, the use of the terror in particular, but so did some of his colleagues. It's certainly the case, moreover, that decisions on the committee were collective and collegial. In fact, Robespierre's signature is found on a very small proportion of the decrees of the Committee of Public Safety. Collot d'Herbois, Biot-Varenne and uh, Barrère, three of the most important figures who overthrew him on the day of Ninth of Thermidor, were the committee's workhorses, really, and signed far more than he. The last five or six weeks before the Ninth of Thermidor saw a huge intensification in the activity of the Revolutionary Tribunal. More than half of the, the tribunal's capital sentences were meted out in the two months of June and July alone. Yet for that period of the Great Terror, as historians sometimes call it, Robespierre had in fact in absented himself entirely from both the Convention and the Committee of Public Safety. This didn't stop the post-Thermidorian accusations of him dictatorially presiding over the Great Terror. The Thermidorians made great play of, uh, of Robespierre's dictatorial plotting, yet the circumstances uh, up to the 8th and 9th of Thermidor, as far as one can reconstruct them, showed precious little sign of organisation of any sort. There's no evidence of closet mobilisation for a coup d'etat in the days leading up to his fall. Robespierre didn't really have a party. Robespierreiste, although that's a term that's used a hell of a lot after 9th of Thermidor, was rarely, if ever, used uh, uh, before then. The final speech when he came back to the convention on the 8th of Thermidor, which he repeated then in the evening at the Jacobin Club uh, in the same evening, contained a lot of bluster, much of it aimed over the heads of the uh, fellow deputies uh, towards Parisian sans-culottes. But it wasn't followed by any move to mobilise supporters on the streets. He didn't establish contact with the National Guard or with army commanders. And on the morning of 9th of Thermidor, he calmly breakfasted in his lodgings as usual before walking unperturbed to the convention with his friends without any premonitory sign of anything untoward happening at all. Robespierre really was plotting a Jonathan Israel-style uh, putsch. He left no convincing signs of this fact uh, in the slightest. The great set-piece set speeches of Robespierre and the Convention in early 94 are sometimes taken, particularly 94, are particularly taken to, uh, sometimes taken to be the considered credo of Robespierre and his followers. I think this underestimates the extent to which they were less ideological expositions than performative events 
distillation, some, one would say, almost of wishful thinking, aimed to rally the troops and to paper over cracks among Republicans at a very difficult time. Indeed, in some ways, they were a sign of weakness and a statement of overweening strength. They underline the extent to which politics during the terror in the capital and in the country at large was characterised less by a sort of homogeneous, monolithic, top-down, Robespierre-driven ideology of terror that is always imagined in the proto-totalitarian narrative, but rather by a somewhat and sometimes bewilderingly assorted set of initiatives and strategies going in very different directions. Although the use of fear, of terror then, as a weapon of government, um, uh, was a constant leitmotif throughout 1793-4, the policies that, that underpinned that fear could be very various. Not all of Robespierre's colleagues at all were fully on board with the cult of the supreme being, which he inaugurated in June 1794, for example. Then again, the existence of competing programmes grounded, all grounded in fear and violence, may be seen in the fact that Robespierre openly expressed antagonism towards at least two competing versions of what revolutionary government was. The first of these was the idea that the people of Paris themselves should be allowed to act as a revolutionary vanguard. Though his speeches, Robespierre's speeches, endlessly, hyperbolically uh, invoked the people and indeed were addressed to them, Robespierre, like many of his fellow deputies in the convention, had a deep-seated fear of popular violence getting out of hand, as it had, of course, in the September prison massacres of 1792. He therefore distrusted champions of the people on the left, stimulating popular discontent and preaching autonomous sans-culotte action. Secondly, Robespierre had no truck at all with deputies on mission in the provinces in 1793-4 who used their powers to attack Catholicism and violently to enforce social legislation more radical than the convention uh, would countenance. This version of terror, he held, would drive neutrals into the camp of counter-revolution and was thus dangerously subversive. So in this perspective, maybe we should talk less of the terror and indeed, that usage only really came into existence after the 9th of Thermidor, in fact. And maybe what we should be talking of is a period of revolutionary government witnessing the interplay of a range of political strategies, which did have a common factor in the means, the use of fear as a political weapon, more so than the ends. As I've suggested, those ends could be mutually antagonistic, as of course was also strike, would strikingly be demonstrated in Robespierre's overthrow for that was engineered not by his long-term political enemies on the right, but rather by his most enduring allies and colleagues uh, on the left, on the Montagnard, on the Jacobin left. Of course, this was no lamb going to slaughter. Historians supportive of Robespierre are sometimes guilty of bending over backwards to minimise his role in some of the most disturbing episodes and the most repressive actions of the terror. His growing obsession in 94 with the dangers of a foreign plot corrupting the revolution from within led to vicious, deadly attacks uh, to left and right. It was he who led the charge against his former ally, Georges Danton, and his old schoolmate, Camille Desmoulins, in the spring of 1794. It is simply implausible that he really believed in the truth of some of the charges that he made against them. He personally, Robespierre personally, drew up the blueprint for the infamous law of 22nd Prairial, which uh, massively extended the definition of political suspect and made trials in the Revolutionary Tribunal speedier and more likely to produce a guilty verdict. It was he who pushed through the law against the concerns of many deputies, in fact. 
And it was Robespierre and his ally Saint-Just who originated the General Police Bureau, as it was called, that, called, that sought to take uh, security and policing matters in-house to the Committee of Public Safety. In the last months of his life, Robespierre signed more decrees about individual policing matters than about anything else, in fact. He, it was he who oversaw pur uh, purges of perceived left-wingers in the sections and on the Revolutionary Tribunal, and he filled both with his own suitably patriotic nominees. And he also fully supported the decree of the convention proposed by his colleague Barère that after battle, in battle, no British or Hanoverian soldier should be captured alive. On the eve of his execution, he was complaining uh, that this decree was not being enforced by the generals at the front whose patriotism uh, he called into question. So Robespierre was undoubtedly closely associated with some of the most repressive uh, acts of the terror but this didn't make a dictator of him, certainly not in the 20th century model of the teleology of the black legend uh, dictates. And in fact, Jonathan Israel's claim that I mentioned earlier that Robespierre was a self-confessed dictator, when you look at it, is intensely problematic. He does in a, make a speech in which he says, uh, he does use that, that, that wording, uh, and Israel cites this. Uh, he may appear, at least to the over-casual reader, to be confessing to be a dictator, but in fact, Robespierre says the exact opposite of that in the speech which uh, Israel quotes. For Robespierre states that he is a dictator, quote, just as Marat and Le Pelletier were dictators. Well, neither the unsavoury revolutionary journalist Jean-Paul Marat uh, nor the uh, former aristocrat Le Pelletier de Saint-Fargeau, whose ambitious educational reforms were adopted by Robespierre, in fact, could by any stretch of the imagination be viewed as dictators, certainly in any conventional sense of the term. What united with them was that they were both martyrs for the revolutionary cause. Marat, of course, famously in July 1793 at the hands of Charlotte Corday, Le Pelletier killed in a restaurant in January of the same year by a wild lone assassin. These men had nothing of the dictator about them. Israel completely misses, in other words, the heavy-handed irony. Rather, they'd given their lives for the, what, they, what Robespierre thought and thought of as the cause of the people. This is how Robespierre saw himself, moreover, a willing martyr for the people, awaiting the moment of immolation. This was the image he cultivated in his personal life. It was the image he projected in the public sphere. This is the image that had made a political celebrity of him. Let's, let's linger a little over the idea of Robespierre as a political celebrity. It's a really excellent book which came out last year by Antoine Dilti, uh, figure publique, which is about the, what he calls the invention of celebrity uh, in uh, uh, 18th and early, late 18th and early 19th century France and uh, England. Um, Litty's book highlights uh, uh, this, this period uh, and shows how, uh, demonstrates how the emergence of the modern idea of celebrity and an ensemble of practices around it really develops at this time. What was distinctive, there had been obviously fame, glory, repute and all the rest of it before, but what was distinctive about celebrity, Lilty argues, was that it, was it represented a new form of notoriety in which there was a rapport between a public figure and a wide, very wide audience, the latter of which felt that relationship was warm and close. On one side of the equation then were figures from all walks of public life, literature, theatre, painting, crime, politics, subject to the status of uh, celebrity, which could have its emotional lows as well as its highs, moreover, and at the other end was the modern 
fan, effectively, compulsively drawn into fascination with the private as well as the public life of celebrity figures. Fans experienced adoring, albeit wholly fantasy-driven intimacy uh, with their subjects, their celebrity subjects, sometimes interspersed with melancholic, heartbreaking feelings of distance and loss. Letter writing was, of course, the choice form of expression of fanship, but it also found outlets in a vibrant commercial sector of engravings, medallions, waxworks, porcelain mementos, and illustrated china bric-a-brac. Lilti passes quite quickly and lightly over the politics of the revolutionary decade, highlighting mainly the, the role of uh, the place of Mirabu as what he calls the, great, the first great star of modern democratic politics. My sense, however, is that Robespierre, who was widely believed, in fact, to be an adoring emulator of Mirabeau in the early years of the revolution, fits quite nicely into this same celebrity niche. Robespierre was the sort of person that people named their children after or wanted as a godparent to, the, to a new baby. Some renamed themselves uh, in his uh, honour. There was one, Jean-Charles uh, Le Gentil, a radical Montmartre sans-culotte, who adopted um, Robespierre's family name as his own first name, thus becoming Robespierre Le Gentil. <laughs> I think that was an unwise move myself, actually. People named their pets after him. Tais-toi, Robespierre. Shut up, Robespierre. This, uh, this call resounded around the Luxembourg prison on the night of 9th of Thermidor, but in fact it only was a jailer ordering, ordering his mastiff of that name, guarding the door to stop barking. People above all wrote to Robespierre as they wrote to few others, except their closest family and friends, expressing an intimacy that nothing except their own strong feelings uh, often justified. Correspondents stalked him too, sometimes with love, but sometimes with vengeance in their hearts. They liked to boast he was their friend. They'd visited him, they'd dined with him. They could cite his most memorable remarks and even extensive, uh, uh, and indeed, extensive police inquiries after Robespierre's death revealed individuals in and around Paris who had used their putative closeness to Robespierre as a means of leveraging local power. Do as I say or Robespierre will get to know and then... That's the logic. Robespierre was a name to conjure with. Indeed, in the terror, it was a celebrity name to kill with. It's noteworthy that in the session of the convention on the 9th of uh, Thermidor, when Robespierre's colleagues turned on him, they accused him of being what? A dictator of public opinion. I think a backhanded way of acknowledging the way that Robespierre's name seemed to attract the unreflecting and uh, irrational adoration of fandom. Many of uh, Lilti's uh, celebrities celebrated their celebrity, milked it for all it was worth, built their careers upon its premises, luxuriated in its unexpected uh, benefits. Yet that celebrity model that he talks about had variants, and none more important, in fact, uh, than uh, the case of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose uh, confessional writings Lilti views as marking the originary moment in the making of modern celebrity. Rousseau won an enormous following of admirers throughout France, of course, but not least among whom was uh, Maximilien Robespierre. Both men, however, shrank from the celebrity whose benefits they enjoyed and indeed stimulated. Despite my repugnance, Rousseau once wrote famously, I have to talk about myself. Like poor Jean-Jacques, Robespierre was always self-effacing, discursively retiring, backing modestly into the limelight of fame and reputation while simultaneously holding up his own arc lights and talking endlessly of himself 
making his political reputation through an evolving autobiographical chronicle about his life, his innermost thoughts, his career. In 1791, as the closure of the Constituent Assembly in which Robespierre had made his political reputation, the people of Paris had chaired him through the streets, placed laurels on his head and threw flowers at him. But by 1794, he was seen, he was less seen, less seen, except at a distance. Fears of assassination from spring onwards meant that he ventured out of his lodgings in the warmly protective Duplay residence on the Rue Saint-Honoré, where, where he stayed, only relatively rarely, as far as we can judge. And he was usually accompanied by anything up to a dozen walkers, fans and friends, who served as his personal uh, guard. This peekaboo style of celebrity probably only enhanced his celebrity status on the grounds that lack of familiarity bred mystique. I want to be alone. The line was, of course, not Robespierre's, but Greta Garbo's, but Maximilien Robespierre could have, uh, could have coined it. In analysing why the phenomenon of celebrity emerged from the middle of the 18th century, Antoine Lilti ascribes a lot of importance to the emergence over the middle decades of the century of a media infrastructure in which celebrity culture could evolve and, uh, and function. Obviously, we know what that is, you know, increasing levels of literacy, cheaper, more widely diffused print items, novels, newspapers, pamphlets, gazettes, satires, and top quality postal services as well. All that provided the essential support for the emergence of a public sphere, that bourgeois public sphere that uh, Habermas uh, analysed for us uh, a few years ago. When set against our own standards, or even against the regime of freedoms indicated, initiated in 1789, Paris under the terror seemed to fly under the flag of unfreedom and repression. It's tr true. In 1793-4, to four, uh, there was tight censorship of newspapers and pamphlets. No royalist views since late 1792. No Girondin opinion since, late, uh, till mid, uh, since mid-1793. Left and right-wing titles under surveillance. J journalists were jailed and they could be uh, guillotined. People watched their mouths. Even smiling was avoided as people kept their heads beneath the parapet. Spies seemed to be everywhere, including in the city's numerous prisons, which housed getting on for 8,000 individuals. Arrests were preventive on the basis of suspicion of counter-revolutionary intent, which was very difficult to disprove. Religious freedom existed in theory, but priests who hadn't sworn an oath of allegiance to the revolution prudently lay low. Nobles were routinely assumed to be counter-revolutionary and from late April had been banished totally from the city. And by June and July 1794, huge numbers of commoners were rubbing shoulders with nobles and priests on the tumbrils as repression tightened. Still, I think it would be misleading to imagine repression of individual freedoms under the terror operating like some efficient, top-down, hydraulic machine operating with oiled uh, proto-totalitarian efficiency to crush dissent. The adjective revolutionary in the title, revolutionary government, uh, actually signifies emergency. It's emergency government, that is non-constitutional government, uh, to deal with an emergency. And as I've suggested earlier, there's far more cobbling together of policies on the hoof uh, than the proto-totalitarian label allows. In addition, while there was indeed a stark contrast between 1793-4 and the early years of the revolution, uh, which had enjoyed the individual freedoms enshrined in the Declaration of Man, the deficiency is far less striking when set against the situation of Paris uh, in the last half century, say, of the Ancien Regime. 
As we know, Ancien Regime society provided the matrix and the communications uh, infrastructure, as I just talked about, to, which, to, those, to those freedoms that were particularly, in fact, instantiated uh, in 1789. But pre-1789 Paris was hardly a free society. Particularism and hierarchy there prevailed over equality and liberty. Catholicism uh, uh, prior to 1789 was of course the state religion, meaning Protestants and Jews enjoyed no rights, while the state church was internally riven by the Jansenist controversy marked by high levels of repression in many of the parishes of the city. Censorship varied in, in intensity, but was always to be reckoned with. A great many of the major figures of the Enlightenment, as you'll know, endured periods of imprisonment and or exile, to say nothing of minor authors. The Bastille was far from the joke it is sometimes accounted, and the same was true of the Lettre de Cachet. The theatre world was closely regulated by the Crown too. Newspapers had to be careful about political reporting. Indeed, most political coverage was supplied by newspapers situated beyond French borders. The Paris police force, directed by a ministerial-level appointment, the Lieutenant General de Police, was uh, intrusive, arbitrary and cruel and owed much to its effectiveness, of, its effectiveness, of its effectiveness to a tentacular network of spies. There were, Louis-Sébastien Mercier stated, quote, spies at court, spies in town, spies in the street, spies among whores, spies on wit. The terror had not invented spies. It had not invented repression or unfreedom. Furthermore, the terror unfurled in a France that was fighting almost the whole of Europe with an intensity that even when it was at war, the Ancien Régime monarchy never had to endure. The terror then looks bad when set against, any of, against the very real gains of 1789. It stands out less, I think, when compared with the social and intellectual conditions of Paris prior to 1789. In spite of its sharp limitations on social and intellectual freedom, the Ancien Régime was unable to prevent, obviously, the blossoming of the French Enlightenment. We know that. So, just taking that further, one wonders whether the repressive character of Paris, um, the terror, uh, Parisian Paris under the terror, really was sufficient to squeeze into extinction the values and practices of the public sphere, as the proto-totalitarian narrative would suggest. My sense is, in fact, that the massive transformation of the world of print during the revolutionary decade pro provided a propitious terrain for freedom, allowing authors and their censors often to beat the censor. The revolution witnessed, as uh, Rolf Reichardt has, has, has put it, an ep epochal media transformation, an absolutely huge expansion of the world of print, uh, which was jacks up far, uh, far higher uh, than that even that obviously achieved under the Enlightenment. Newspapers, pamphlets, songs and prints. There had been 36 print shops in Paris before 1789. Uh, it reached the level of 221 in 1798, a six-fold increase. In fact, the volume of print production, as I shall suggest, may well have risen more than this. Before 1789, Paris had one daily newspaper, the Journal de Paris, established 1776, Maybe another 50 or 60 circulated or were published in the city. Political reportage was minimal within the press, as I said. But in 1789-90, 300 new papers emerged. Over the decade as a whole, there would be 16,000 in France as a whole. In 1793-4, over 100 papers, newspapers, still circulated in Paris. While it's been suggested that at the height of the revolution, 
the city printed some 300,000 copies uh, daily. Alongside the newspaper press was the print world of pamphlets and prints, of course, some 40,000 uh, over the course of the decade, by one estimate. Prints and caricatures had been particularly heavily censored under the Ancien Régime. After 1789, uh, the, the, the France-Paris a world of popular images uh, last seen in the wars of religion and the Fronde. Over the 1790s as a whole, print generated an extraordinary extension of the public sphere. Habermas designated the public sphere of the Age of Enlightenment a bourgeois public sphere, as we know. But the public sphere of the mid-1790s, well, let's call it, for some, give it a name, the Republican public sphere, reached parts of the population that had never reached, uh, been reached under the Ancien Régime. It constituted a kind of democratic dividend, providing readers and consumers with a larger, richer and more varied print diet than ever before. This was all the more the case in that print interacted with emergent forms of sociability so as to amplify impact. 18th century reading practices, we know, were often collective, occurring in bars and coffee houses, family settings, on street corners and the like. Now, new sites of sociability, political clubs, reading rooms, popular societies, sectional assemblies, all of those things offered an expanding number of, of venues for reading. It's been suggested that a multiplier of 10 may be used to give a total uh, uh, readership of a single newspaper. Well, if this is true, then the 300,000 copies coming out of Paris each day reached a readership of 3 millions, and that's not far off half the adult male population of France. And that density of uh, reading practices was likely to have been much higher in Paris, of course, which took a disproportionate share of the total newspaper production, especially in 1793 to 4, in fact, and where literacy rates were at their highest. In this connection, it's also worth mentioning the vibrant singing culture uh, that the 1790s inaugurated. More than 3,000 songs were published over the revolutionary decade, nearly half of them actually in 1793 and 1794, under the terror then. The revolutionary government's commitment to our intellectual and artistic production actually boosted production of songs, newspapers, pamphlets and caricatures. The realm of theatre also felt the dynamic wind of change. The Ancien Régime monarchy had regulated performances, concentrating them in the three state-run theatres, the Comédie Française, the Opéra, Comédie Italienne, around which, it's true, uh, clustered a number of secondary ven venues. The revolution totally deregulated the theatre, allowing the number of theatres in the city to expand hugely, nearly 40 institutions. On the day that Robespierre was executed, uh, one could take one's choice between performances at around a dozen uh, or so theatres. And one could also visit Astley's Amphitheatre, now run not by the eponymous English leisure entrepreneur, but by Antonio Franconi, future circus impresario. The theatre that day hosted a fête civique, the high point of which was, quote, an illuminated chariot pulled by four richly comparisoned chargers, followed by a display of horse-rising exercises, tricks and stunts, and highly amusing scenes. The Franconi spectacular serves as a reminder that the revolution also introduced a, introduced a wide array of festivals, public festivals of varying sorts and intensity. The most in, intensive and extravagant of these were, of course, those uh, devised and managed by pageant master Jacques-Louis uh, David, enormous spectaculars like the Festival of the Supreme Being in June 1794, in which literally hundreds of thousands of people uh, were present and were very enthusiastic by most accounts. 
and then there were of course minor uh, uh, ceremonies every 10 days, the decadal uh, ceremonies. Songs and hymns played a particular role in such uh, ceremonies. The robust democratic culture of print and performance that I've been describing was not, it's true, running at full throttle in 1793 to four under the shadow of the guillotine. With the political and security stakes so high, there was a marked falling away in a number of domains. There may have been a lot more singing, seemingly, but the number of newspapers dropped, for example, and the press's political diversity was definitely reduced. High-profile deterrent measures could have a sharp effect on freedom of speech and shape cultural creativity along politically orthodox lines. The brouhaha caused by the production in August 1793, for example, of the politician and dramatist François de Neufchâteau's play, Pamela, which is based on Samuel Richardson's great novel of sensibility, is a case in point. The censors were shocked to discover that Pamela herself uh, may have been of noble stock uh, in the plot, a pedigree construed as clearly counter-revolutionary. The play closed, the theatre was shut down, Neufchâteau was imprisoned, along with all the actors in the play. This was a very good way to encourager les autres, uh, as Voltaire would have said. Of course, in the light of such issues, Parisians, as I said, they obviously watched their mouths during the terror. But then, as I've tried to show, they always had done. But this didn't equate to dumb conformity. There were ways of expressing dissent and political insouciance that had a long history in Paris's uh, past. As the poet and wit Chamfort put it, the government of France before 1789 had been a monarchy tempered by songs, by titties. Political irreverence uh, of the Parisians was legendary, as Mercier himself noted. They, quote, laugh at everything. Quote, they repulse cannon, sorry, they repulse cannon by vaudevilles. They enchain royal power by epigrammatic sallies. Why should we believe this, this irreverence died out completely within the Republican public sphere of 1793-4? to four? Was the terror really able to silence chatteringly contentious Parisians? Perhaps it's true, the gravity of the military situ situation encouraged conformity. Perhaps those repressive measures did play a big part. Perhaps. And they certainly would have had a, big, uh, a strong inhibiting effect. But one can, I think, legitimately wonder whether even these factors were completely effective. The scale of the Republican sphere was so extensive, I think, that it resisted policing such criticism out of all existence. Even with the deterrence of censor, jail and guillotine, other emotions, other emotions apart from fear bubbled up to the surface. As long as the Opéra Comique is running well, uh, Louis-Sébastien Mercier, Mercier had remarked to Paris under the Ancien Régime, as long as the Opéra Comique is running well, one doesn't have to worry about civil war. Well, of course, in a way, 1789 proved the uh, letter of his prediction wrong, but the spirit of that commitment to pleasure uh, that Parisians expressed may be an emotion worth taking seriously. Even at the height of the terror, Government and its censors were finding it difficult to break old habits in theatre-going, for example. There were lots of evocations of republican virtue and celebrations of military success in the repertoire in 1793 that, you know, they played pretty well to Parisian tastes. Some 200 new plays were staged in 1794 alone, half of which, historians tell us, could be classified as patriotic, politically uh, correct then. But then half of those, it means, were not uh, patriotic or political 
and were in fact largely traditional fair. Moreover, censoring often failed in its operations as a result of political and institutional rivalries. There was a decree on the 2nd of August 1793, which, uh, for example, which bade to force theatres to play every 10 days one of three state-endorsed uh, plays, either Voltaire's Brutus, Lumiere's uh, William Tell, or Marie-Joseph Chénier's Gaius Gracchus. But that was only enforced extremely haphazardly. It left the field relatively clear for the continuance of the old repertoire and additions in its spirit. The most popular play in the whole of the revolutionary decade was Ensemble's Les Deux Chasseurs et la Laitière, The Two Hunters and the Milkmaid. Composed in 1764, it was a light musical piece full of songs based on a La Fontaine story and featuring two actors, one actress and a pantomime bear. <laughs> and indeed, it was playing at the Ambigu Comique in July 1794. So Parisians could, if they chose, lap up militaristic celebrations of the war effort, but then they often showed a preference for entertainment over propaganda, laughter over austere Republican exemplars. Brutus was, it's true, a staunch and lasting presence in Republican theatre throughout the 1790s, but so was Harlequin, and so was a pantomime bear. Parisian theatre audiences thus seem to exhibit similar traits to those of their Ancien Regime forebears, as mockingly satirised by Mercier. They may have been genuinely patriotic, authentically and sincerely republican, but they also wanted to enjoy themselves, I'm suggesting. So that one may plausibly wonder whether the government that failed to respect this fact did so at its own peril. And in this context, I think, it's worth noting uh, the excessive government response in late June and early July to a spontaneous campaign of what were called fraternal banquets, which arose, they rose spontaneously throughout the sections of Paris to celebrate the great military victory of Fleurus on the 26th of June, 1794. It was like street parties absolutely everywhere throughout uh, Paris. And the response of the revolutionary government, uh, and Robespierre in particular, in fact, uh, and his allies, to, was quite ridiculously out of proportion, because Robespierre saw these sort of joyful street parties as aristocratic traps for sans-culottes, in which good patriots clinked glasses with their potential assassins, and they were closed down, they were forbidden. Of course, we should never lose sight of economic factors explaining a loss of enthusiasm among, among the Parisian labouring classes for revolutionary government. Food shortages were still there, the threatened imposition of wage control. But that fraternal banquets incident, I think, showed a dangerous drifting apart between Parisian opinion, which had its own ideas about how to balance politics, uh, humanity and pleasure, uh, and a government that was wedded to a more austere political course. This was where Robespierre's celebrity status played against him. He was less visible than he had been before, as I've suggested, and certainly more inaccessible. In the discontent that surrounded government policy in June and July 1794, the walkers and the devoted fans who followed him lovingly between the convention, the Jacobin Club and his lodgings on the Rue Saint-Honoré were transmuted uh, into a praetorian guard sharpening their knives for the seizure of power. Celebrity left him ultra-exposed, in other words, to covert criticism, far more exposed, I think, than was the case with his fellow members of the Committee of Public Safety, who didn't have that celebrity status. On Ninth of Thermidor, it was his celebrity, as much as any other thing, which really counted against him. It allowed his transmuta transmutation 
by a, a process of what we might call celebrity demonization into an arch villain, the arch villain of the revolution. It allowed him to become, as I've suggested, one of the great villains, one of the great celebrity villains of the 19th and 20th centuries. Four days before his overthrow, on 23rd of July, <coughs> excuse me, 23rd of July, 1794, the Parisian newspaper, the, the uh, Feuille du Salut Public, had reviewed a new and much applauded one-act comedy by Dumagnon, which had played at the Théâtre de la Cité uh, Variété a couple of days before. And that play was entitled Hypocrite en Révolution, Hypocrite in Revolution. It was, the paper explained about, quote, one of those crafty men who by their robust oratory under the cloak of patriotism influence uneducated citizens and popular assemblies and for a while seduce worthy sans-culottes who imp imp imprudently give their support to such false patriots. We might note such individuals so that each of us can point out the deceitful knaves who in the sections usurp a false popularity that they wish to use so as to overthrow the republic. For me, it's like totally uncanny to read that text, dated uh, uh, a matter of days before the Journée of Ninth of Thermidor. For its language and the charges of hypocrisy overlap to an extraordinary extent with the anti-Robespierre's propaganda campaign that followed instantly after Robespierre's overthrow. And indeed, Dumagnon goes on, and a few months later, he produces a classic anti-Robespierre's text, La Nuit du Neuf Ortiz Thermidor, La Mort du Tyran. Such is the uh, extent of the discursive overlap that one wonders, was the play a sort of pre-Thermidorian augury of what was soon to happen? Was this anti-Robespierreism out there on the public sphere before the fall of Robespierre? I've been arguing that the repressive apparatus of the revolutionary government was perhaps too sketchy to cope with the vitality and the scale of a still very capacious Republican public sphere whose anti-authoritarian instincts honed under the Ancien Regime monarchy were still in place. Dumagnon's play and its journalist critics suggest that to uncover resistance to authority, we need to look more carefully for covert and even coded expressions of dissent prior to the Ninth of Thermidor. And indeed, we do have a methodology for doing this, which has been developed precisely for detecting resistance uh, to authoritarian regimes. And that, of course, as I'm sure you'll be familiar with the work of the sociologist James C. Scott, his 1990 study, Domination and the Arts of Resistance, highlights what he calls hidden transcripts by which dominated groups develop a collective critique of power uh, by utilizing a set of terms and codes that are kept away from those in power. If we look closely at the newspaper press in Paris in the months leading up to the 9th of Thermidor, which is an astonishingly large and almost totally underused uh, source in fact, there are a number of points at which one begins to suspect the existence of, such, of just such hidden transcripts. In the Constituent Assembly of 1789 to 91, royalist politicians and journalists uh, used to drive Robespierre completely mad, to distraction even, by misspelling his name. One of the things they did particularly was to call him Robert Spierre, like Robert's Pierre, uh, which was supposed to evoke the, uh, uh, the uh, Robert Damien, uh, whom uh, the would-be regicide assassin of Louis XIV, whom Robespierre was held totally erroneously to have been uh, related uh, to. So that was in 1789 to 91. So why was it five years later 
in the summer of 1794. Why were some journalists still misspelling his name? Then again, on the third of Thermidor, the editor of the Abreviateur Universel noted a typo that had crept into the report of one of Robespierre's speeches. Instead of using the verb terre, to silence, be silent, the, t the text had used faire. Well, you know, it's a letter, single letter. So the editor told his readers, Robespierre's speech should not read, it was we who made false denunciations. Making denunciations, later held universally to be false, were, adju were judged uh, uh, to be Robespierre's speciality after the 9th of Thermidor. On the 5th of Thermidor, several newspapers advertised the appearance in French translation of an English tract, a political treatise, published, originally published in English in 17, 1685 by one William Allen. It was, the papers noted, a text that had been written, quote, by an enemy of the tyranny of Cromwell. Within days, this covert reference would be followed by far more copious equations between Robespierre and Cromwell, the dictator. So maybe these are just coincidences. My sense is that they're more than that and that once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, and three times is enemy action. I don't have time, obviously, to look more briefly at this phenomenon of resistance through typo and through tipping the wink. Uh, it's kept to say that these are by far, far, far from lone examples. And I think it's interesting the kind of perspective that this opens up on the public sphere, that Republican public sphere that had developed since 1792, and which I'm stressing is still so buoyant uh, and, uh, and vibrant. And it provides a far more satisfying lens, I think, for us to consider the terror than the kind of sort of retro genealogizing inherent in seeing the terror as essentially proto-totalitarian. One of the problems of seeing the terror through the lens of a totalitarian regime of the 20th century is that it overestimates the capacity of governmental instruments of repression and it underestimates the capacity of the people to have opinions of their own and to find ways of expressing them. On the 10th of Thermidor, year two, on the 28th of July, 1794, then the execution of Robespierre toppled from power the previous day in the convention, saw huge hundreds of thousands crowds celebrating his death. There's been a tendency among historians to see this as a final sort of release of tension that the people could at last open their mouths in criticism after months of silence and repression. But I think this underestimates the role of the people of Paris in instigating his fall. It actually underestimates the people of Paris altogether. So I've demonstrated elsewhere, I think, and it's an article which came out last year in the American Historical Review, Parisians in their thousands and in their tens of thousands had mobilised that previous evening to thwart the insurrectionary plans of the pro-Robespierrist commune. Furthermore, examining more closely the state of public opinion um, and being alert to those covert and coded languages in which resistance could be expressed will, I hope anyway, allow us to detect continuities between the bourgeois public sphere of the Enlightenment and the republican public sphere of the 1790s. The people of Paris who were instrumental in the overthrow of Robespierre had, I'm suggesting, been growing tired of the austere and rigid form of power that Robespierre had come to represent, celebrity Robespierre had come to represent. Ultimately, in the face of violence, a violence they found increasingly difficult to square with their more generous conception of humanity, they deployed uh, in resistance the weapons of wit and humour. 
I'm always skeptical of identifying transhistorical characteristics in individuals, let alone groups of individuals. But here, let hope over, override uh, skepticism. Let us express confidence in the ability of Parisians in our own day to continue to deploy humanity, wit, who knows, even humour, in the pursuit of social harmony at another tr troubled time in its history. The best of outlooks, even in the worst of times. Very much the Parisian way. Thank you. Thank you.